Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. just simply often 
sometimes can't even be in the same room with somebody that has an opinion different from ourselves. And in my opinion, we need to turn this around and turn it around now. This is becoming a habit, I'm afraid, of our society. And habits, as we all know, are difficult to break. So part of my role tonight is to make you uncomfortable, to help you, to help put you in a state of discomfort. Because it's only when we are uncomfortable that we're able to change, to change our behavior and our attitudes. We're in this world where this word cloud, I think, just sums it up. It's just negative, negative, negative. And we need to start turning it around. There's a quote from Murakami that I think is very poignant today. Always remember that to argue and win is to break down the reality of the person whom you're arguing against. It is painful to lose your reality. So be kind, even if you are right. What that says to me is a couple of things. First of all, so many times you think about it, it's really important for us to be right. And when we get into that cycle, I ask that we step back and say, you know, is this really the hill on which I need to die? Is it really that important that I win this argument, that I am proven to be right? And the other thing that I'd like to suggest is that all too often, there is no clear right or wrong. Certainly not as often as we try to make it that way. And where we get ourselves in trouble is we draw that line in the sand and we can't back across it again without losing face. And we need to recognize that when we're dealing with other people. That sometimes, you know, they draw that line in the sand and they may not be entirely right. And it's up to us to give them the graceful way to back out of that. In other words, not gloat over the fact that they were wrong and we were right. Freemasonry, of course, is about going from darkness to light. I'm looking at this effort as going from light to true enlightenment. That, to me, is the whole purpose of Freemasonry and why we're trying to use these Masonic ideals to restore civility to society. Trying to bring society into a state of true enlightenment. Is this the time for the Masonic family to begin to make a difference? And I hope you feel that it is. We presented this idea to the Conference of Grand Masters in Baltimore in February of 2016. And we've had a task force, a group of over 60 brothers, mostly from North America. We typically get about 18 or 20 of them meeting every single month since March of 2014. And we thought the first thing that we ought to do was define the word stability. It seemed like a natural starting point for us. And so we've spent our first four months of meetings. We spent our first four months of meetings trying to come up with that right definition. And it just was like trying to hold sand in your hands. We just weren't quite getting there. Getting close, but not there. After the fourth month of this frustration, I did what I should have done at the onset, which is what? I Googled it. 
to our old friend Wikipedia, the font of all knowledge, typed in the word civility, and it said C in civility. It's one of those aha moments. No wonder we're having such a tough time defining it. It is one of those words that's so much easier to define what it is not than what it is. Well, if you look now, you will see that there's a definition here. And this is primarily due to the hard work of worshipful Brandon Lippincott of Conejo Valley Lodge. He's just a wizard. How many of you tried to liken it to a Negro where they think they want you to die before they have to pay your claim? Same thing with Wikipedia. They want you to just go away. But it is there. If you look at it, you'll notice several references to Freemasonry and this Masonic civility effort. And we're frankly very, very proud of that. In fact, if you look now, it's only in the last week or so that there's a banner at the top saying they're considering merging it with incivility. Here we go. We're making that cycle. But we're fighting it. We're challenging it because we think it is critical that there be two totally different definitions. I've had people tell me that civility is simply about being nice, avoiding certain topics, implying like we do in a lodge where we don't talk about four things. You may remember that it's politics and religion. Well, it's really four things. We don't talk about baseball and we don't talk about traffic either because that group up in the north where Chris lives, they have some other minor league baseball team that they really like. But civility is much more than just being polite, abiding by the rules of etiquette. It's much more than just avoiding the difficult conversations. Civility to me is having a basic level of respect and dignity for the other person with whom you're in conversation that you can then engage in difficult but necessary conversations. To say this a slightly different way, you don't need civility when things are going well. When things are going smoothly, you don't need civility. It's when things are difficult that you need it. Making some sense? Looks like I've only put half a dozen or so of you to sleep so far. I'm glad I included this. I've done several trainings for a couple trainings for DMLA lately, both up in NorCal. They held their virtual DMLA Academy for their leaders. And then just last night, I did some training for some of their DMLA advisors. But I love making this presentation to young people, especially our Masonic Youth Order members, because they get it. They understand it. And in each of the three Masonic Youth Orders, I've sat down with them and talked about what their teachings say about civility. And I purposely put this in here for DMLA because it was so fresh in my mind. But there's seven precepts. And if you're not familiar with them, they're listed here. And I've asked them, does filial love say anything about civility? And overwhelmingly, they say yes. It's about treating our parents with that kind of dignity and respect and love that they deserve. Reverence for sacred things. They found a tie there. Yes, if you consider something sacred, you're going to treat it with respect and dignity. Courtesy is the free space on the bingo board, if you will. That's the obvious direct tie to civility. Comradeship. Being a good comrade. Being a good comrade. 
patriotism, loyalty to your government and to your country, and respect for it and treating it with civility. And as I say, I've done this with Job's daughters. I've done it with the Rainbow Girls. The Rainbow Girls have taken their seven stations of the bow, and they were able to tie every one of them to this as well. And it occurred to me that this one concept of civility and treating people well and properly just is the umbrella over all of our Masonic teachings. And I think that's something that just speaks absolute volumes. I'm disappointed we don't have some young people in here tonight, but hopefully those of you that work with them, and I know many of you do, will see those tie-ins. Why am I not advancing that? So we know there's a problem. We know it's getting worse and worse every day. I don't think there's much dispute there. And I will tell you that over the course of the six years, I've had many occasions where I've come close to throwing my hands up in the air and saying, you know what, I can take my time, effort, energy, and money and put it into something that's going to be more fruitful. And I've thought about hanging this effort up. And about that time, I'll get a phone call or an email from somebody that will say, you know, something I did way back when got helped by this today. And that's what stokes my fire. That's what gives me hope and faith that we're on the right course. The good news is there are things that we can do to stem the tide. When we first started this effort, we teamed up with the National Civility Center. And this was a group that had been around for many, many years. They were actually getting ready to fold. We helped to resurrect it. And one of the things that we did was we built a civility toolkit. So those of you that have the Craftsman, the Snap-on tool chest in your garage, think about it. You're about to rebuild a carburetor. They can do that anymore. Or work on the car, whatever you're going to do. You're going to open the drawer that it contains the tools for that particular job. Doing something around the house, you'll open a different drawer and pull out the particular tool you need. Same kind of thing with the civility toolbox. If you're encountering incivility in your workplace, in your home life, in your community, dare I even say in your lodge, there are going to be particular tools that you might try. And I'll share some of those with you yet tonight. In fact, some of the tools that are in there were put together by our Masonic Center for Youth and Families. So their contribution to it has had a worldwide impact. There's well over a thousand tools in that toolkit. One of the things that Freemasonry does really well, and frankly better than any other organization that I've been involved with, is it brings together people of very different backgrounds, very disparate thought and opinion, of different creeds, different religions, different ideals. And we manage to come together and accomplish great good for society. But as we know from Freemasonry, you can't just simply put people together and say, okay, now go do good things. It just doesn't work that way. Diversity in and of itself is difficult. And I think we can all recognize how important it is. I mean, Lord knows this isn't a world I'd want to be in if there was even two of me, much less a world full of me. I couldn't handle ten minutes of that. We need that kind of difference of opinion and perspective. But to get to a place where you can truly appreciate diversity, it's going to 
effort. And the first thing we need to do is proactively seek to understand other people. Now, notice I say the word proactively. You can't just sit back and expect to learn about what makes that person tick. Well, certainly there are a few people that you spend five minutes with and you know their entire life story. But that's really the exception. With most people, you really need to be interested in them and ask questions. Many of you know that I'm a financial planner for one of my three careers. And I tell people I get to be nosy. I get to learn what people's deepest desires and dreams and hopes for their family are. I get to learn about their careers and what they enjoy and what they don't. To some degree, I live vicariously through them. I enjoy that. That's the greatest reward from my career that I receive. And I'm naturally curious about other people that way. I want to know what's truly important to them. Once we understand them, then we can get to the point where we accept them for those differences. And this can be considered to be, I'll tolerate you. I know you're different than me and I'll put up with those differences. And I accept the fact that we need to get to that point of at least tolerating and not condemning them for those differences. But to me, that is probably not even true life. And it certainly isn't true enlightenment. So we need to get to the next point, which is where we truly appreciate one another for our differences. I mean, think about how the building of how King Solomon's Temple was funded. Not everybody was a leader. We had a whole tens of thousands of workmen. They found their particular niche, where they fit, and the erection of that stupendous edifice. Even inside a lodge, we have our leaders and we have the workers in the quarries. And those workers in the quarries are every bit as important as is the worshipful master. So when we can figure out who has what abilities, who has what passions, who has what desires and interests, and when we can fit them together, we can create something really special. Now, if you're walking down the street and you see something passed or broken of some kind, what are you going to do with that? Thoughts? You're all muted, so if you want to say something, unmute yourself. You kind of broke up right there in the mid-question, Marshal. Of course I did. You're supposed to read my lips. You're walking down the street, you see a piece of broken glass, broken chart. What are you going to do with it? Pick it up. Put it in the trash can. Trash it. It's ugly. It's useless. It may be harmful to somebody, right? Yes. I'm going to suggest to you that each of us is that broken chart, that by itself it doesn't have anything, any special use to us, any special beauty. But when we put them all together, we create something that's very unique and very special. And those of you that have had the privilege of going up to our Grand Lodge building in San Francisco will recognize this as that tremendous endo mosaic that was crafted by Neil Norman. And if you get up close to it, you'll notice that it's made of pieces of glass and even soil and seed and leaves, things that you wouldn't even notice as you're walking down the street. You put it together, and this is telling the story of Freemasonry in the state of California. So I hope that's a good illustration for you of both the importance of diversity and how different we can be. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you, Counsel. The case has been well briefed and argued, and we'll take it under advisement.
difficult it is. And I'm going to branch off for just a moment because I think it's fair to say that this country, to some degree the world, has reached a watershed moment. We are learning and recognizing, many of us for the first time, about the plight of certain segments of our society. The question now is, now that we've reached this apex, what do we do about it? Blood has been shed to get us to this point. Lives have been lost. The key now is, are we going to change society so that it is a place of true opportunity for every member of the public? And this is where I think Masonry needs to take a lead. It's not time for us to be silent, in my opinion. And we don't have to do this, any of this, in the name of Freemasonry. But in my opinion, we do it because we are Freemasons. Masonry teaches us that we are to regard the whole human species as one. The high, the low, the rich, and the poor. So once we make sure that our brethren and our Masonic family are healthy and doing well, I'd ask that we all look inside to figure out what we need to be doing to help our communities to heal and to help to make systemic change. Time is running out. There are a lot of symbols in the Masonic Lodge. We can go through and talk about how this one speaks to civility, how that one does, and so on and so forth. But there's one particular symbol that I look for in a lodge, and I notice when it's absent. It's not required furnishings in California, although it is in other jurisdictions. But this symbol speaks more to me than just about anything else. And it starts with that point. And that point, of course, is said to represent us as the individual who is always striving to improve. As a husband, as a father, as a son, as an employee, as a citizen, we're always trying to get better, to break off those superfluous parts of who we are. However, we know it's difficult to become that kind of person because there's all these pressures of society coming at us from different directions to try and push and make us in ways that we don't necessarily want to go. And so the first thing we're taught to do, of course, is to take the compass and circumscribe, circle around ourselves. And that's there to create a boundary beyond which we're not to allow our passions and prejudices to begin to intrude upon the rights and enjoyment of another person. Is this saying that we shouldn't be passionate? Not at all. Because without passion, nothing worthwhile would ever be accomplished. But what this says to me is that I need to have enough awareness about how and when my actions, my words, my deeds start to encroach upon somebody else and making them uncomfortable. I certainly have a right to be passionate. I certainly have a right to share my thoughts and my opinions. But I need to also recognize when I am offending and intruding upon somebody else's space and back off. Do you think there's bearing to this for our general society? Where behind? 
the keyboard. We think that every thought that comes to our mind deserves to be broadcast. Do you think this is a lesson that we can share with non-Masons as well as other Masons? Again, not in the name of Masonry. We don't have to put Masonic words to it. But it's a concept, I think, that most people can understand and eventually embrace. Were you going to say something, David? No, no, no. I'm just agreeing with you because it looks to me like you're waiting for a response. But, you know, we are muted so we can allow you. So I just wanted to make you aware that we are listening. Perfect. I can see everything within the circle. All the whites outside the dock, everything within the circle as being civility. And everything on the outside would be degrees of incivility. That would be easy to teach to not only ourselves but to the public. I love it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what this symbol tells me is whose behavior do I have control over? All those on the outside of the circle? Nah. You. Exactly. I might have a little bit of influence over my kids' behavior, a little bit. But the only one who I really have any control over at all is my own. So let me focus on that. Now, the symbol, of course, isn't anywhere near complete because we have those two parallel perpendicular lines, which are said to represent our patron saints of Masonry, St. John the Baptist and St. John the Evangelist. And we walk into a lodge and we see this. It's supposed to conjure up their teachings and, again, help us to be the kind of person we strive to be. But when I see those two parallel lines, they also remind me of my Masonic mentors, the men who have guided me and, frankly, continue to guide me to this very day. I want to spend a few minutes on this because I think we have kind of let the pendulum swing to where many of us are actually afraid to mentor newer, younger Masons. And we all hear the jokes about the past master. As soon as he takes off the top hat and sits on the sideline, he has all the answers and so on. But I think, again, that we become afraid to guide these men. It's one of the most beautiful parts of Freemasonry. Many of you have heard this story before, but I'm going to share it for those who haven't. I became a Mason in May of 19—a Master Mason in May of 1992. I finished a degree. The master has me sit in the junior steward's chair. He says, poof, you're now in the line. So I come home, and Linda wants to know how it went. I say, oh, it was really neat. Well, guess what, babe? What's that? I'm in the line. She says, do you have any idea what that means? I said, no. She says, well, I do, and you're in deep, deep trouble. Well, from that night, every meeting afterwards, Worshipful Jack Joe of blessed memory would come up to me after the meeting, put his arm around me, and tell me what I had done wrong. Now, fast forward three and a half years later. It's December 1996. I have just completed my last meeting in the East as Master of the Lodge, and I was convinced I had finally got it right. It took me 12 meetings, but I didn't forget the Pledge of Allegiance. I didn't forget to invite the Masters and Past Masters to a seat in the East. I got closed properly. I was determined to gavel the Lodge closed and get out of there before Jack could come and ruin it. So I gavel it. I take off my collar. I move my apron, and I make a beeline. Well, for an older guy like me, that's a pretty big deal. 
I, Jack, was pretty quick. Because about the time I reached the altar, there he was. He puts his arm around me. I have to tell you, my arm was caught. I was going to get thrown right in the gut. How dare you rain on my parade? Fortunately, Stump had caught me. And I realized that while I thought I was at the end of my Masonic career, I didn't have any more growth or development to do, Jack realized quite the opposite. I had a whole lot more polishing that needed to be done on the body. He knew I was still a very, very rough ashlar. Did anybody else around us have any idea what Jack was saying? If all they knew, he was saying, let's go out for culture and happiness. What was Jack doing? He was privately admonishing me of my errors. He was whispering good counsel in my ears. And what Jack taught me over those years, and I miss him, and his teachings resonate with me all the time, consistently. What he taught me is, you admonish somebody in private, but you praise them publicly. And I think we're doing too much, oftentimes, of the opposite of that. We're quick to criticize publicly, and we forget to praise people for jobs well done. So I hope that's something that we can all recommit to. When we see good work done, let's compliment them, and let's do that publicly. And when we are seeing somebody go in a wrong direction, let's gently admonish them of their errors and see if we can bring about a reformation. So back to the symbol. We know it's not yet complete, isn't it? It's not complete until we have the volume of the sacred law. Because we know, as Masons, just drawing the circle around our passions and our prejudices is not sufficient. Just having the guidance of our patron saints and our mentors in Masonry isn't sufficient. We need that divine guidance as well to lead the kinds of lives we aspire to lead. And with all of this, now we can go about and becoming the kind of person we desire to be. So much of restoring civility in society is just simple changes of how we say things. We don't have to go reinvent who we are. We don't even have to change who we are. We just need to change a few of our bad habits. One of these is think about when you're in a conversation and you say something and somebody says, yes, comma, but. How does that strike you when you hear that? Any thoughts? Go ahead and unmute yourself. There's a saying that says anything before the but is fake or unreal or untrue. Here comes the criticism. Yep. The yes was almost a throwaway, right? And whether the person intends this or not, we interpret it as, oh, my goodness, they're going to blast me. And we put we start to get defensive and we're making the assumption. And frankly, we start to tune out. It's no longer a constructive conversation. If we simply change that word, but to get to hand. Now think about the impact that has on you. How does that strike you? Yes. And I thought about this as well. Exactly. You go from negative. Yep. And now it's building on the conversation. We as Masons are what? We're builders. So let's build on that relationship. Let's build on that conversation. 
story most of you know, most worshipful John Cooper. Grandmaster, he's, he's one of those men that, that I learn from him in every interaction I have with him. And rarely is it something trivial, something about knowledge. Usually it's about how to treat people. Um, but most worshipful John has conferred hundreds, probably thousands of first degrees. He's certainly participated in, uh, or observed thousands of them. He and I were in lodge once together. Jack, it seems to me it was a time where you may have been with us. I want to say it was in Sacramento. And, um, we sit next to each other and he, he nudges with his elbow. He says, did you catch that? And I said, I didn't hear any mistake. It sounded good to me. No, no, no. And what had happened was he heard the ritual an entirely different way than he had previously. Had the ritual changed? No, at least hopefully not, right? What changed was John had. He has, he's, he was a 50 year Mason by then. He'd done thousands of these, but he was more susceptible now to new learnings because of where he was, how he had changed. So when we're sitting in these degrees and those of you that are familiar with someone, you know, instead of just trying to recite the words back and catch an officer who makes an error, let's open our minds and our hearts to what that is truly telling us. And I'll submit to you that we'll come out of that. There's one more thing that strikes me. You come up to somebody, whether you're just meeting them or they're an old time friend, inevitably you're going to say a lot to them and ask them why. How are you? Exactly. How are you? Do you really care? I'll submit to you probably not. And in fact, if you want to find out if they really care, answer them, oh, I'm lousy. You know what they're most likely to say? Oh, good. So am I. It's become a throwaway line. So I'm going to challenge you to find something else to ask somebody so that you can catch them a little bit on guard and find out how they are truly doing. I guess it was probably five, six, maybe seven years ago, I joined the Internet Lodge out of London, England. I wanted to see if Freemasonry could be practiced virtually. Well, now we're forced to do it. And I think we could say, yeah, we're managing this way, but this certainly isn't our preferred way. And while there are advantages to this and that we can bring brothers in that otherwise wouldn't be able to sit in lodge with us, this just isn't a fair substitute. Masonry, in my opinion, is meant to be practiced in person. So that when I do see you and I come up to you and I say, Bill, how are you? Because I say that too. And you tell me I'm fine. I can look in your eyes and say, you know what? I'm not buying what you're selling, Bill. And I can put my arm around you and kind of take you to the side and say, what's really going on? And let you pour out your heart and your miseries to me so that I can either persuade or suggest to you. That's my Masonry wisdom. So I'm going to start telling you about some of the tools that are in that kit. I'm going to introduce the first one by the three Ds. The first D is debate. And if you've ever been on a debate team, your purpose, of course, 
versus what? To win. To have the best argument. And there are certain rules that you need to, we're what Michael's talking about with all due respect and belittling of those throwaway lines. Or if you're from the South, well, bless his heart. Better brace yourself because you know what's coming after that. But if you're in a debate, the purpose, of course, is to win. And there's certain rules that you need to follow because if you fail to, you are as good as gone. One of those rules is you can never, ever waver from your position. You don't know what one, that's a really good point. I hadn't considered that before. As soon as you show that, it's a sign of weakness. Your opponent's going to come in with a killer. But I think we can see the time that there are times and places where debating is appropriate. By the way, what we saw with the Democratic primary debates, and if you see one between two final candidates in the general election, those are not true debates. Those are made for TV sound bites, reality TV, if you will. If you want proof of this, next debate, have it on, close your eyes, and listen to the question the moderator asks, and listen to the response you get from the candidate. And it's going to be night and day. Well, what do you think about health care? Well, what I think we ought to do about immigration is just night and day. So understand what a true debate is. The second D is deliberation. Deliberation is where we have a problem, typically a complex problem. And the solutions are not readily evident. So we're going to gather the people with the expertise, the education, the understanding of the subject matter. And the first thing they're going to do is probably deliberate over what the true problem is. Because oftentimes what we say is the problem is just the superficial issue, and we have to delve down and get to the root of the problem. From there, they're going to brainstorm possible solutions and evaluate the advantages and disadvantages to each of those possible solutions. And to the best of their ability, they're going to anticipate unintended consequences. And then they're going to continue to hammer back and forth. And ultimately, they're going to seek to reach what? A consensus as far as the best course of action to move forward with the debate. And when a group decides it doesn't necessarily mean it was unanimous, but the group that decided this is the best way to go, and they will speak then with one voice. Is that what we do inside our lodge groups? Or what we ought to be doing? Maybe doing even more of it? Yes. I think we can see the times and places for deliberation. And I really think that's a big problem with society today is we're not being contemplative enough about the problems at hand. We're throwing out solutions without regard to those unintended consequences. Take the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Plan. They elected to give $600 more than normal unemployment. And the idea, as I understand it, was to be able to replace tip money that people were otherwise earning and so on. But did that, in effect, create a disincentive for people to work? I don't know. I haven't surveyed them. I won't know if that's had that effect. But before they, wouldn't it have been nice if they had the luxury of time and the wisdom to really anticipate all the advantages and disadvantages of everything they put in that, what, now four trillion dollar budget? Thank you, counsel. Your time has expired. Thank you. Case is submitted. Counselor excused.
ideas, you know, when you speak about the problem and uh, see what is your point of view and what is mine and everybody else's and try to put them together. Right. Excellent. So it's about sharing your view, which is speaking and listening. Bingo. Listen. If you distill what dialogue is to its lowest common denominator, it's about speaking and hearing and listening. Is it about winning the way the bait is? No. Is it about finding solutions as in a deliberation? No. Sometimes answers will become apparent, but that's not the purpose of dialogue. Well, gosh, if you're not about trying to win a debate, if you're not about finding solutions, then why waste your time simply talking about it? Any thoughts? Might learn something new. Might learn something new. Gain a better understanding. Greater understanding, perspective. Might grow. For me, dialogue is basically doing a consultation. You have a lot of knowledge and wisdom to provide, but without understanding the needs and wants of the speaker, you will not be able to provide in the best customized way to solve that point. That must be the lawyer and you talking there. Hey, I resemble that. Be careful. Dialogue is about listening and being heard. How many times have we shouted at somebody, you're just not hearing me. It causes great aggravation and frustration. Sometimes we don't even need a solution. We just need to be heard. So let's make sure that when we're engaged in a dialogue that we're not creating that frustration for somebody else, that we are truly hearing them. And I'm going to make a generalization here, but as men, we oftentimes go into our fix-it modes. Somebody is asking us or saying something to us, they're complaining about something, we have to go try and fix it. Sometimes the other person doesn't need it. And I catch myself doing that more and more. Somebody has come to come up with something pretty early on. Do you want me to just listen or do you want me to fix it? And I'll tell you what, it takes a lot of pressure off when they say just listen, will you? So we're talking about dialogue. Dialogue is easy. Having a civil dialogue is not so easy. And this is the art, the skills that I think we can practice within our lodges and show our communities how to do this. So this is a methodology that was created out of the professors at the Hugh Downs School of Human Communication in Arizona State University. And they've actually trademarked the phrase civil dialogue in their tagline, Hot Topics, Cool Heads. And many of you have seen me do this. But you have five chairs seated in the shape of a horseshoe in the middle of the room. And they're so close together that oftentimes their knees are practically touching. And then you pose a statement that's designed to create some real dissent in terms of how people receive it. I'll give you an example that I use frequently. 
and that is that it, it would be appropriate for Freemasonry to sponsor a youth order that is open to people of all genders. I think some of you probably see me do this subject. I've got a number of them that I do. And the facilitator will then explain um, what our youth, three youth orders are and what, what they accomplish, how it helps these young men and young women to, to really understand more about themselves, get used to talking and dealing with adults, finances, organization, leadership, and so on and so forth. And the fact that, you know, we have the two girls' organizations and the one young men's organization, you know, there's some people that think that it's important that they are able to stay within their gender um, during these formative years. And there's other times at school and, and other instances where they can, can coexist and, and learn about each other. And then there are others that think, you know, no, this is really the, the time and the place where they should have the ability to be with each other and learn the Masonic values and so on together and, and so on. And then you'll also notice this is worded intentionally, people of all genders. Let's admit that there are some people that don't relate as being purely male or purely female. So that introduces that whole issue. And you can imagine that, you know, some people are, oh, yeah, it's about time. We ought to be doing it for sure. And others say, no, 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 no. And, and don't go telling me about people of other genders and so on and so forth. These, the, the girls need a place to be girls. Boys need a place to be boys. So the facilitator will then invite people to take one of those positions right here. And I find it interesting when I do this with young people, I have to warn them ahead of time. You can't run into the chair, up to the chair. And there's no sitting in laps because they will fill those chairs before I even finish. Adults are a little tougher. You know, sometimes you have to get the one person to break the ice. But you have somebody take the strongly agree, somebody else takes the strongly disagree, somewhat agree, somewhat disagree, and they're neutral and undecided. And then the facilitator is going to share some ground rules. And I'm going to share these with you because these work outside of this kind of exercise. And so there are some things here that I hope that you will internalize and try to adopt. The first is be passionate. As I said earlier, nothing worthwhile would be accomplished without passion. But do it without being hostile to the other person. Focus on how the statement makes you feel. That helps to diffuse the potential for hostility. Be true, uh, uh, use truthful speech that does not attack others. It's easy to say, but how do we go about doing that? Use I, not I language. I think, I feel, I believe, as opposed to you statements. Why do you think that's so important? Thoughts? Because you're not, you're not accusing the other person. You're using you as an example. Therefore, you will not be uh, hostile. It helps remove some of the defensiveness immediately if you start off and you're saying, it's me, this is how I feel or it makes me feel. Exactly. Other thoughts? Or if you say, if you say you, you think this, you think that, you, you, you. That's very direct. You're not attacking the other participant in the conversation by using you. Right. How you actually feel as opposed to someone else. 
I speak of? Do I know what Glenn is thinking? No. All I can speak of from, from any truth exactly is my own point of view. Right. So, and, and again, this is one of those little things that we all do it. Sergio, you think, no, I don't know what Sergio thinks. Sergio, what I think, or my belief is, it changes the whole conversation. Disagree without demonizing. It's okay for somebody else to have another opinion. It's okay for you to have a different opinion. It doesn't make them evil. Now, there are some statements and opinions that people can make that are just so abhorrent that, no, they don't have any place in a conversation as far as I'm concerned. I'm going to give you a quick example of this. Most Forcible Dave Perry met with the Grand Master of Georgia to talk about them banning gay members. I'm oversimplifying it. But that Grand Master, who I knew because our terms had overlapped, told Most Forcible Dave, I will never be caught sitting in lodge with a black man. And David handled the conversation the same way I think I would have, which was, I'm sorry, but this conversation is over. If I can't have a basic level of dignity and respect for that other person, then I'm not going to try to engage in conversation. It would have been fruitless. I don't know that I could have treated him with any kind of respect. And so I simply extricated myself. I would have extricated myself from that situation. I probably wouldn't be convincing him in any way because his heart wasn't open to hearing anything counter to that. So there are some subjects with some people that I simply won't get into. But for the most part, I can have difficult conversations with people, even though they have very opposing points of view from mine. And I will tell you that some of my dearest friends in Masonry are on completely opposite sides of the political spectrum from me. And yet I will go to the ends of the earth for these men. And I believe they would for me as well. Employ active listening. What is active listening? It's about truly being in tune to the other person and letting them know that you are. Making that eye contact with them. Nodding so that they know that you are understanding or hearing them. Don't interrupt. That derails their thought process and it communicates to them that you are not truly listening to them. Don't try to formulate your response while they're talking. And this is the hardest thing in the world for me. And I think most of us do this. You know, we're just so afraid we're going to lose our chance to make our point. That we're formulating that response while they're still talking. And shocker of all shocks, but the human mind just cannot multitask. Try as I might, I can't. And that means you can't both listen and think about how you're going to respond and do them both well at the same time. So truly stay in the conversation and listen to what they're saying. Now there's a risk to not formulating a response while they're talking. And that is you may well forget what you were going to say. My reply is maybe what you're going to say wasn't that important. If it was, you probably would have remembered it. Another way to show that you're listening actively is to reframe what you thought you heard. Well, Don, what I think I heard you say was, and this is accomplishing two things. Number one, it's letting Don know that I heard him. 
Number two, and maybe more importantly, it's giving Don the opportunity to clarify a misunderstanding that I may have had. How many times have we had that knockdown, drag out argument that's lasted hours or days or even years and ruined friendships only to later learn that it was over a silly, stupid misunderstanding? Wouldn't it have been nice to identify that misunderstanding early on, clarify it, and move on our way? So reframing, it's an art. You don't want to just ape back to them what you think you heard, but interpret it and say it in a different way, and I think you'll find it goes a long, long way to aiding that conversation. And then another important part of the civil dialogue exercise is the facilitator has named somebody in the audience to be the information source. We used to call that a fact checker, but that's garnered a different kind of definition these days. So it's an information source, and that person is armed with their cell phone and good Wi-Fi, and if one of the participants states something as fact that one of the other say, you know what, I'm not so sure about that, that line of conversation ceases until the information source can prove or disprove it. And it's amazing. Rarely is that person actually called upon, but just their mere presence changes how we talk about things. Instead of stating things in such absolutes, we use more of what I call waffle words. Well, I think or I heard it was like this, something like that instead of 69.8% of all statistics are made up on the spot, and we all know that. Do you see how these means of communicating can be used in any kind of dialogue you're having? It doesn't have to be only in a formal setting. Can you think of situations that you've witnessed in your own communities, in your own walks of life, where being able to facilitate this kind of conversation might have been a benefit? Think about it right now. Please, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, I think it is really useful to actually be mindful about this exercise, just because now with technology, whether it's a phone or computer, everybody seems to have the goldfish attention span of seven seconds. Literally, you know, somebody could just forget what I just said right now. So, you know, I think just being mindful of this exercise when we're having a conversation would be extremely important. Indeed. Indeed. And I believe, I'm sorry, I believe the best place to start practicing that is within our homes. I mean, I've been married for 31 years, and I can tell you over a couple of arguments that if I used some of those things, those arguments would have been obsolete and most probably in about five minutes would have been gone instead of lasting for two hours. And that's reality. Been married to St. Judy for 31 years, huh? 31 years, 1989. That's awesome. Absolutely. And Seb, you bring up a really important point. Sometimes we treat the people we claim to love and care about the most the worst. Our families. And especially now that we're all hunkered down in tight quarters and so on, and people are getting tired of being around each other. Hard to get that bre
and, and I think that the reason is because it's safe. We know they're going to continue to be there for us, even if we mistreat them. But I think we need to make a conscious effort to change that. These are the people that we ought to be going that extra mile for and striving even harder to figure out how to properly communicate and treat each other to help to prevent those battles. When you think about them, most of them are over some pretty mundane, silly things. I want to come back to this civil dialogue exercise. I had suggested a couple of years or so ago, Charlottesville, I believe, was three years ago, kind of wild about how it relates to today's world. I had suggested that could that incident in Charlottesville have possibly been prevented if the community could have just come together and used this type of exercise to talk about whether the statues of Confederate soldiers in the town square should have been removed. And you would have had people talking about how, nope, it's important they stay up for the historical value and so on and so forth, and others saying about how it delivers a horrible message and it's intimidating and hurtful to see that and so on. And I have a feeling if the community could have had that conversation, they could have come to a decent compromise without one person being killed and many others being injured. Well, it's kind of ironic that I've used that example for all these years, and now in my community and many of your communities, we're having that discussion about whether to remove the statue of Father Sarah that is at the top of California Street here in Ventura that is causing tremendous arguments and lost relationships, lost friendships and so on. And our city council Tuesday night spent, oh my gosh, at least five hours, maybe longer, hearing from over 100 people with public comments and so on. And it's just, it's not helpful. You know what the people in favor are going to say, the people against are going to say, and it's not helping the community to come to the best decision. I think it's probably too late, but I wish I'd had the foresight to see if I couldn't have brought this community together to engage in this kind of civil dialogue about it so that they can make the best decision. Of course, the big problem is this works when we're in person. We've tried doing these civil dialogues on Zoom. They just don't work so well. You really need to be in person. But please look for opportunities to use this. And if you want to propose it or run it, I'm happy to help you because how you frame that statement is really key. And think about it. If we opened up our lodge rooms to bring our community together to engage in this conversation, or if we help to host it in our public library, again, not in the name of masonry, but because it's the right thing to do. Isn't that why we're here? Isn't that the role we should be playing in our communities? Many of you will remember Solomon's Wheel. I'm going to run through this fairly quickly. I think it's a really great tool that we developed many, many years ago. And it takes the three primary tenets to Freemasonry, brotherhood, love, belief, and truth, and the four cardinal virtues, temperance, fortitude, prudence, and justice. And you put these words and phrases down in a pie, with each one having its own slice. Three plus four is seven. A pie, if you cut it equally, has eight pieces. So you have a blank there. And that blank can be 
whatever is speaking to you at the moment. And I found this to be a really powerful, powerful tool, especially when you have a group of people. And um, I've done this again with adults and, and young people, men and women. Um, I've done it with people that were not Mises and um, changed the wording up a little bit and, and it still translates. And what you do is you, you take some masking tape, you make these, these slices of the pie, you put these words literally on the floor. And you have the people come into the circle. And you ask them, that, you know, can we agree that what we talk about here in Solomon's Wheel does stay here so that people can be frank. And it, and it can end up being a pretty emotional time for folks. And we need to accept that and understand it and respect it. And you have them each spend some time literally standing in a slice of that pie and think about what that is saying to them at that moment. We have a lot of people make sure they're all walking the same way, same direction like Sam. Otherwise, they're all going to reach out. When they've uh, accomplished, gone through all of them, then ask them to go to the, the word or phrase that's speaking to them at that moment. And then ask them to act that out with the other people in that slice without using words. Any thoughts as to why we ask them to do it without words? Any thoughts? Do they really have to think about the concept? internalizing it more and not just throwing out the definition. Right. Since they cannot use words, they're acting it up. You know, they're using their talents as actors. And, you know, I'm going to show you with actions or mimicking something instead of words. So that's like a forces to use your other resources. Exactly. It really sinks in much better that way. Now, some of them are really easy. I mean, everybody can do brotherly love. Um, some of these others are more difficult. After they've done that, then you ask them to go where they would like to develop more, where they feel that they have work to do. And this is where it was in Washington State, I'm guessing two years ago. We did this in the women's setting. <laughs> I'd never seen this before, but the gals are basically doing twister where they have feet in one, one legs in the or arms in the other. And they wanted to cover all. And then finally, some wise gal got uh, in the center and said all of them. Um, but then you have them share as they're willing to and want to why they took that spot. And I have actually seen, and many of you have done this, you've probably seen similar, where brothers have repaired broken relationships with one another, where brothers have broken down because it, it spoke to them so much and it helps them to, to finally get over something, through something, break through it, and start to really um, heal and mend. So it's a powerful tool. And I'll tell you how I use this now. When I'm facing a, a dilemma where the answer is not immediately clear to me, 
I will kind of meditate and force myself to go through this in my mind, do it mentally. And I'll literally spend a few seconds, maybe even a minute or two in each of these quadrants. And it's interesting to me how that blank space changes depending on what I'm doing. And I think sometimes I may only spend 30 seconds on it. Other times I may be spending four, five, six minutes on it. But eventually it really does clear my mind and the solution becomes readily apparent. So I'd encourage you to, to take this as another arrow in your quiver, another tool to help you to be the kind of person you want to be. Some sense? All right, let's get back to this. What do you think of that logo? To me, it speaks volumes. This was designed by a brother, Wilson Beckett, out of British Columbia. And when he showed it to me, I was just in awe. If you think about it, every one of those tools there, every one of those symbols says something about civility. It's really powerful in my mind. So what have we done? Well, over the six years that we've been involved in this, we have created several efforts. We have recently incorporated the Worldwide Civility Council. It's a 501c3 nonprofit. And that is the umbrella organization for all of our efforts. And I'm going to share those with you one at a time here quickly. First of all, the Masonic Family Civility Project. That is where these efforts within the Masonic family obviously are housed. And you go to MasonicCivility.org and there's all kinds of resources for you. There are trestle board articles. There's presentations for within masonry. There's presentations if you want to go to the Rotary or Kiwanis meeting or chamber meeting. And you can download those PowerPoints, modify them to your heart's content. Nothing's protected. Nothing's copyrighted. And make it your own. They're there for that very purpose. We've also designed this so that if you come across a good resource, there's a form you can fill out, upload it, we'll approve it, and it will become a part of our library. So I encourage you to go there. One of the things that we built was the Civility Scorecard. We actually started this well before the 2016 presidential primary season. And our thought was that we, and I'd still love to see this, during the debates that you would have one of those meters at the bottom of the crawl on the screen showing the candidate's relative level of civility. And the idea is that we would encourage the candidates who are seeking our votes to deal with each other and with us in a proper civil manner so that we can learn what they truly intend to do to us and for us. And we can then make an educated voting decision instead of just yelling over at each other and seeing who can get the last word in. And we recognize there would certainly be some candidates who would pride themselves on having a low score, and that's their prerogative. But we built this. It uses artificial intelligence, so there's no subjectivity to it. It's not able to measure spoken tone or volume or things like that, but it does have a way of really getting into it. And it's more than just words. It's a combination of words and how they're put together and so on. So if you ever have some speeches that you want to analyze, just get a hold of me. I'd be happy to give you the key to get into it. The 
without getting political here, I'm going to talk about our current president's speeches. I've taken his State of the Union speeches and a few others, but most of those, and as they are prepared, I take the transcript, I paste it in here, I get ability score. And then after he delivers it, I get the transcript of that, and I paste that in and, and analyze it. And every single time his prepared speech scores higher than how it is actually delivered. I think the moral of that story is we all need to stick to our prepared speeches. When we start getting off the script on impromptu thinking we're getting clever, we're more likely than not to get ourselves into trouble. One of the other things that we've done is created a disability shop with some, with some pretty cool swag. And the net profits of this go to help fund our efforts that we do on purely donations and a real shoestring. The site is actually down right now because we're moving it, but it should be up very shortly. I need to go back and change this. We've all been in those Facebook or, or other online conversations, and we see them turn really ugly. And unfortunately, all too often, it's amongst Masons or members of the Masonic Order. Um, I will admit that I oftentimes pose some statements or some thoughts on Facebook that are going to get um, a lot of contravailing opinions. And I do that intentionally and primarily for two reasons. One is I want to know what people are thinking. I want to hear views that are different from my own. But secondly, it gives me an opportunity to show to other people who are a part of it, uh, hopefully to exemplify some civil behavior um, where I can disagree with somebody and do it civilly and not take the bait and get trapped into behaving in ways that I won't later be proud of. But there are other times where um, I've seen Masons going at it and just being really ugly. And so I'll just simply put a hashtag Masons for civility. Or if you're involved with Dean Lay or Rainbow or Joes or what have you, do that one. And this is typically doing one of two things. They are either unfriending me and blocking me and taking the conversation elsewhere, which is fine. Okay, that's, that's their prerogative and I'd rather not see it. Or in many cases, it seems to actually lower the temperature. It's a fairly subtle, hopefully not too preachy way of saying, brother, please remember you're a Mason. And are you exemplifying what you should be? So you might try that on occasion. Last May, we hosted the first Urgency of Civility Conference in Washington, D.C., in Alexandria at the George Washington Masonic National Memorial. We brought together almost 80 people from some 25 different organizations. And the whole idea was let's learn about what's working, what's not working, and how we can work together to be more effective. Uh, coincidentally, but I don't think accidentally, we started it, we opened it on the exact 230th anniversary of George Washington's first inauguration. So we're there in this auditorium, which is really spectacular. That's, that's the hall, the great hall. But we're in the auditorium, and in walks President Washington. We have the chancellor there. Those of you that know Worshipful Mike Nevin, he was the chancellor. And he administered the oath to George. And then George delivered his inaugural speech, his address. And it was truly chilling. We just kicked this, um, this um, conference off to a perfect, perfect start. I don't know what we're going to do 
next year, frankly, to beat that. Um, but I then started off by saying, I don't know if I want this conference to be so successful that you clamor for another one next year, or it's so successful that you don't feel we need to have another one. And then at the end of it, I said, okay, which is it? And they said, we want another one next year. And I said, guess what? You're not getting one next year. I don't have the energy. We'll do it in two years. And boy, did that prove to be fortuitous, because we obviously would have had one next year. But we have planned the next one. It's May 17th to 19th. Hopefully back in D.C., if we're all safe to travel then. We're going to start the first day at the memorial. And if you think about the timing of this, this is going to be four months post-inauguration, either re-inauguration or inauguration of a new president. And think about how likely, the likely state of the American society at that time. Do you think it's going to be less divided than it is today? I'd reckon not. So we think that the message is going to be really critical then. And what we're going to do is encourage the attendees to have arranged to have meetings with their elected representatives on the Hill. And the first day, we're going to train them about how to engage with them, how to really get their points across and so on. And the second day, we're going to be up on Capitol Hill having those meetings. And then we're going to come back. What did we learn from it? We're hoping to have the, there's actually three different congressional civility caucuses. I'm not sure why they need three. We're hoping to have those leaders come with us. We'd like to have somebody from the Senate because we don't have such a group and see if they can't just start coming to some terms about how they can treat each other better so that they can actually do the work. So that's a different tone this time that we're taking on. If you can join us, we'd welcome you to do so. It's really going to be something special. One of the things that came out of the last session was that we need to have a way for organizations, entities, and individuals to be designated as civil. So think about it with your Masonic Lodge or with your business or with your social media page where you could apply to be certified as civil. And you then put that mark out there. Take my law practice. I put it out there. It's in my lobby. I have agreed to abide by these guidelines of civility. And it's really easy that if one of my clients, one of my employees, somebody with whom I do business feels I did not treat them properly, they can click right into that and they can file a civility concern. It's not a complaint anymore. It's a concern. And our goal then is to engage Russ and say, you know, this is the issue that we received. This is how we're interpreting this. How do you feel about it? Most importantly, how do you think you could change things to be more civil about it? So our goal here isn't to wrap Russ over the knuckles and say you can no longer be certified, but it's about bringing together a solution, a reformation. And we think that this has the ability to be a very grassroots from the bottom up change to society. Instead of always counting on things coming from the top, let's do this throughout our communities. Tell me, what do you think of this idea? Does it have potential? Absolutely. Absolutely. So 
Mark Zuckerberg is always on Capitol Hill trying to rationalize his way around things. Could you imagine if he says, you know, one of the things we've done is we brought on this group to certify certain pages and people as civil. And if they get out of line, there's a means there to try to bring it back. Can you imagine him being on Capitol Hill and saying this is one of our solutions we found? Would you be interested in having this on your Facebook page or your Lodge website page on the front door of your business? Yes, definitely. Downey will definitely. We're going to look into it right away. Let us finish building it. Let us finish building it. But we're getting turned out to be more complex than I ever dreamed. But I'm good at coming up with ideas. I'm not as good as implementing them, finding the right person. I got to tell you, Worshipful Carlos Diaz, who's on here, he designed this logo for us, as well as the Worldwide Civility Council logo that you saw before. Worshipful Carlos, publicly, let me thank you for all that you've done for our efforts. You're incredibly talented, but you're also incredibly dedicated and compassionate. And we would not be here today without you. So thank you. Thank you. And you recorded that, so you can take that and use it for marketing. So where do we go from here, folks? We spent a lot of time together. There's, what, 45 of us, 40 of us here. We spent an hour and a half together. If my math is right, that's about 60 hours. If you put $100 an hour on the value of our time, that's $6,000 we've invested tonight. Can we say that we've received at least $6,000 of value out of this? And the answer is not unless we put it to use. If we put our tuition to use, take what we've learned and implement it in our daily lives, then it was tuition very well spent. So what do we do? Let's first of all examine our own behavior. Let's commit to seeking those higher levels. Let's hold ourselves and each other accountable. Every day, let's make new mistakes, not repeat the old mistakes. I don't expect perfection out of myself and certainly not any of you. We all recognize we're never going to get to the state of that perfect Ashley. But I do want to have more and more smoothness to my Ashley each and every day that I've been granted to walk the face of this earth. Go to MasonicCivility.org for resources. Again, there's lots of them and there's opportunity for you to share things that you find there. Look for promoting this inside your lodge, inside your workplace, your community, and your family. Become a civility ambassador. Now, this is a program we started about four years ago. We developed a core of Masonic civility ambassadors. They are truly worldwide. We have them in Serbia and Israel and Mexico and Canada and all over the place, Brazil. We use that kind of as an incubator, if you will, to learn from them. And it's been really hard to stay in contact with them, but we're constantly giving them tools and techniques and so on that they can take to their own grand lodges. But we really think now's the time for us to develop a community civility ambassador program that's made up of non-Masons and that can be our boots on the ground to, again, take these lessons out there. And so you can become an ambassador and help us to build that community ambassador program. Go to the civility shop. Once I have it up there, give me hopefully not more than a couple more weeks. 
consider attending the urgency of civility conference. And I need to add to this um, something very worshipful Jack Rose came up with last year in talking with his son was um, we need a day without politics. And I took it off because until we got closer to October, but it's about time for me to put this back on now. And he and his son were sitting around one day and, and Jack, maybe you should just tell the story because you'll get it more right than than how I've embellished it probably. It was, it was a matter of my son was sitting there and something came on TV and he said, wouldn't it be great, Dad, if we could just have one day without politics where we could concentrate on all the good things that are going on in the world instead of all the things that are, that are negative and bad? And it just hit me that we've never had anything like this in our whole world where we could have one day to concentrate on all the good and, and let loose. Basically, it's like it's a cleansing. It's a cleansing of the mind and the soul to, to concentrate on all the good about the bad, just for one day. And so we picked a date. We picked the date of October 20th. And what was magic about that, Jack? My son's birthday. <laughs> and also, if you think about it, two weeks before the election. Um, last year happened to coincide with annual communication. Um, but we promoted it far and wide. And um, I did hear stories of how people did it. And I will tell you, I was able to do it. Um, I think it was a whole lot easier because we were in sessions at Grand Lodge. Um, I think a, a quote normal day, it's going to be harder for me because um, it's obviously so pervasive in our lives. But I think it's a, a tremendous idea and we will definitely be promoting it again this year. Um, there's something called, there's one of the groups that came to us um, is the Bridge Alliance. And this has become the group that's kind of brought all these other people and groups that are trying to restore civility in some segment of society together. And together with the National Conversation Project, they have developed Listen First Fridays. And the idea is that these are, are hosted sessions to talk about issues of the day. And if you just simply Google Listen First Fridays, you can sign up for them, and I'd encourage you to do so. So my point here is that there are tangible things that we can be doing right here and now. I'm often asked, why should we as Masons be engaging in this effort? Russ, you just said there are dozens of other groups that are trying to do this. There are several reasons why I think we are the ones who should be doing it. First of all, we have the teachings, the values, the tenets, the language, the symbols of civility. We have the delivery system. Two million Masons across North America, four and a half, five million across the globe. If we can just motivate five or six percent to embrace this message and change how they're living their lives, think about the impact that we have. And then the other big, big reason to do this is what I refer to as engagement. Think about the men who are knocking on the doors of your lodge, like James. They tend to be younger men. Our greatest source of growth these days is the 18 to 30 something. And we always hear about how this next generation has a short attention span. Nonsense. When they find something that is rewarding to them, they will give it their all. What I do find is that they have short attention spans for wasting their time. So when they're coming to a, our craft, 
they're looking to be a part of something bigger than themselves. If they find that, they will be true and faithful servants of mothers. If they don't, they're going to go look for it elsewhere. I'm finding the civility ethic is something that is engaging the younger, newer Mason. He's feeling like he can take what he's learning, those first, second, third degrees, and put it to use in his daily life right away. But then on the other end of the spectrum, the 50-year member, who we don't tend to see as often anymore because, let's face it, driving to a stated meeting at 7 o'clock at night is not necessarily what is totally rewarding to that man. But he is also embracing this effort. It's something tangible that's reconnecting him to why he is a Mason and that he can implement and put to use in his daily life. So that engagement is another great benefit of this. If I can take just three more minutes, there's one more concept that I'd like to share, and then I'd be happy to open it up for some questions. I know I've already overstayed my welcome. You know what? We're enjoying it most worshipful, so don't worry about it. It's your show. Take as many minutes as you need. Well, I won't do that, but I'm just going to share one more concept with you. Think about something. Somebody walks into the door. We are subconsciously and instantaneously judging that person. We're judging whether they're friend or foe. Is somebody from whom I need to flee or somebody that I can run to with open arms and a great big hug? We're judging that person based on how they look, how they're approaching us, their color of their skin, how they're dressed, so on and so forth. And we're making assumptions based on that. Some may be accurate. Some may be inaccurate. That's innate in us. That's what has kept us alive as a species for all the millennia. And I'm going to ask that you flip that on its head and presume decency and meet everybody with whom you come in contact. I want to draw a parallel to masonry. What does it take to be a mason? We know he's got to be of age, got to have good rapport, and so on and so forth. What's the one fundamental thing that he has to profess in order to become a mason? You need to ask. You need to ask? He needs to profess a belief in the supreme being. Exactly. So listen to the two parts of that. He needs to profess that belief. Do we ask him to prove it? No. Here we are. Exactly. We're taking him for his word. This may be a fellow that we've known because he's come to six stated meeting dinners. That's all we know of. And yet something is core to who we are, such as a belief in the supreme being, we are automatically trusting that man. Now, have there ever been atheists who have become masons? Yeah. But as a craft, we've said we would rather be trusting and proven right most of the time and proven wrong every now and then than assume everybody is lying to us and be proven wrong a lot. What other walk of your life will they trust you for your word the way we do, that man who's knocking on our door? You're applying for a loan. Oh, trust me, I made that much money. No. They insist on seeing your tax returns and your W-2s. And by the way, you can't send them a copy of your tax return. They're going to get them from the IRS because they trust you that little. You're applying to school. Guess what? I was a straight-A student. I'll give you my report. Oh, no, no, no. They need sealed transcripts from your 
your school. You go for a driver's license for crying out loud. Yes, I live at this address. No, no, no. You bring me two proofs of that, two pieces of proof. But the only place where we're trusting a person on something so incredibly important to us for his word. Let's look at the second part of that for a moment. Profess a belief in what? A supreme being. Does that mean it needs to be the same supreme being, the same belief I have? No. We're weak to those proofs. We have identity different beliefs in what that supreme being is. And that gets back to our diversity in a way that makes it so enjoyable to be among nations and to learn from one another. Our trip to Israel, Gary was with us. We were at Jedekiah's Caves. These are the caves where they quarried the stones for the building of the temple. We know they were used for building a second temple, and we believe they were actually used for building a King Solomon's temple as well. You walk in there, and it's just amazing. There's all these different chambers. There's water from the ceiling, rough ashers all over the floor. And, in fact, the master of Holy City's Lodge who was hosting us, he picked us up at our hotel. We get in the cab, and he's got everything that we need. And I said, so what are you going to use for the three lesser lights? I'm not imagining there's a floor plug in the cave there. No, no, I forgot them. I forgot them. And I said, not a problem. There's a market over there. We'll send somebody out for candles. And Gary will remember this. So I give somebody some money. I said, go buy us three candles. Well, they come back with these three skinny tapers. Oh, my goodness. What am I going to do? So I find what ends up being a triangular-shaped rock. I melt them down. I stick them to the rock. Now, fast forward. There they have to introduce everybody. You think we introduced everybody in our lodges? No, they introduced absolutely everybody in there. And the first candle melts and goes out. The second candle melts and goes out. The third one's getting really close. And I look over at the worship master, and I said, you need to close lodge before the fourth one melts. But that's not germane to the story. What was germane there is he pulls out the smooth ashlar. And I said, great. Where's the rough ashlar? Oh, no, I forgot it. I forgot it. I said, look at the floor. Not to worry. There are plenty of rough ashlars there. But the evening was incredible. It still sticks in our minds. We had 150 brethren from 10 different countries, 60 different lodges. And there we initiated an Arab man into the craft. And I'll tell you, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. It showed the true universality of masonry. And it didn't matter that there were Jews and Muslims and Christians there. We were all able to get along. Truly, truly amazing. So masonry presumes decency in others. Let's take that outside of the lodge room. And when we come across somebody, let's presume they're a decent person. Occasionally, we'll be proven wrong. There are jerks out there, no doubt. And I'm going to propose that we even do this with our elected representatives. And realize that even though they're going about things in an entirely different way than we might think is best, give them the credit for having our best interest at heart. And that they're truly trying to do the best they have with what they have. And when we have that attitude, it changes 
how we carry ourselves. And it makes us more contributors to solutions instead of to problems. Just wanted to leave you with that presumption of decency in others. Civility is not easy. It's not going to simply happen. It's a commitment that each of us need to make. And it's my hope that as of tonight, you've learned enough of the tools and techniques that you can now commit to it on your own so that you can be that proverbial pebble and allow yourself to be dropped in the placid waters and allow the ripples of your actions and your words to spread to the far shores and begin to restore civility into society. Merciful, thank you for the time. Brethren, thank you for your attention. And it's always great to get to share these thoughts with you. Thank you, most worshipful. And the brethren, if you have any questions for the worshipful master, the most worshipful, let's take a few minutes. Do you have time, most worshipful? I have time. My contact information is there. You all know how to get a hold of me now. There's no excuses. Yeah. So please, what thoughts and questions do you have? Worshipful, sir, it's not a thought or a question, but I want to say thank you, most worshipful. And my brothers, I got to bounce, go to my area at large meeting. Love you guys all and talk to you guys soon. Thank you. Love you, most illustrious, sir. Thank you for attending. Thank you, guys. Talk to you guys soon. Thank you, most worshipful. Great presentation. Thank you for allowing us and showing this to us. You know, one of the things that I've recently kind of had an epiphany on was, you know, with everything going on with race relations and everything else, you start to think, you know, what do I really know? It's easy to jump in and, you know, downplay or poo-poo what other people are saying. So I started reading a book, and it's called So You Want to Talk About Race. And I'm actually listening to it as an audio book. And what I found really interesting is as I'm listening to it sometimes, I find myself initially getting kind of defensive, like, you know, oh, come on, that's BS. But the interesting thing is because it's an audio book, the person that's talking to me can't get defensive or can't fight back. And so, you know, I get it out of my system and then continue to listen. And a lot of basically every single chapter, I kind of as I go through, I'm like, okay, you know what? I can see the point. And so I thought it was very interesting. It's different than reading. It's different than a discussion. By listening to that audio book, I've gained a whole different appreciation on some of the race relations. As you really listen to it from another side, get it out of your system, to the car or whatever, and then continue to listen. It's been very educational just for me on my own feelings and views and beliefs. Worshipful Aaron, I've got to commend you for that because you're forcing yourself to listen to unfamiliar and uncomfortable things. And that's how you're growing. About four years ago, my daughter and many of you know Alyssa and how strident she can be. She was trying to tell me that I was the beneficiary of white privilege. And I flat out told her nonsense. I left home at 16. I worked three jobs. I put myself through school. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I worked for everything I had today. And I was incredibly defensive about it and frankly just not understanding it whatsoever. 
And bless her, she kept at me. She was rather relentless. And finally, after some point in time, I got it. That I, as a white person, I, as a man, a male, even at age 16, was able to get those jobs that somebody else would not have been able to get the jobs. I was given legs up that other people weren't. And every one of us in this meeting room here are standing on the shoulders of somebody else. None of us in here are self-made. We've all had the benefit of those who have gone before us. And so what that made me realize is that I'm Jewish. I used to get the crap beaten out of me at the bus stop in Phoenix, Arizona, by what we now know are white supremacists. At the time, we just thought they were bullies. That's a little bit of what so many other parts of our society are going through. It gives me a tad of empathy, ability to empathize, but I still can't. Look, my heart races like crazy when I get pulled over for speeding. But never do I fear the loss of my life the way others do. So we have to understand that we don't understand, continue to have the conversations, tough as they are, and figure out how we can be part of the problems instead of continuing to be part of the roadblocks. So I commend you for that. Other thoughts? One thing that reading all this civility webinars you presented, I think this is the second I heard it. The last time was attending our Green Lodge session in San Francisco. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff going on in addition to the pandemic. And the race relationship is where the challenges are not new. One thing I really take out of this refresher of your civility webinar is that the fact that we are all coming from a different background. We are privileged in certain ways. I mean, gender by itself is a huge privilege in this country. I do think that it is very important for all of us to actually just really work together to help others to pay forward to make this a better American experience for our future generations. Because you may never know what difficulties and challenges others face in their lives. And if we can just be a little bit more compassionate, a little bit more civil, we will be able to make this a better union moving forward together as a country. Very well said. Thank you. Any thoughts? So, James, I just told you all the secrets of Freemasonry. So, I mean, you also have Shelby is also another prospect. It was an excellent presentation. It was worshipful. And, you know, I'm not going to suck up too much of you tonight, but I do want to thank everybody for attending. And I also like to make all of you guys an invitation. Very worshipful. Jack Rose is going to give us a presentation next week on Thursday, the 16th, same time. You guys can use the same link. And Carlos Diaz, Carlitos Diaz, I don't see how he does everything that he does. But he is very supportive and he's coming to do a presentation. We haven't set up a date also. But we also would like to ask all of you guys if you have anything special on your 
on your uh, lodges, please invite us. Uh, our worshipful Dale Quayle uh, and I, who is a master of uh, Bellflower, number uh, 320. I think it's 320, somewhere around there. Anyways, uh, we talk because, you know, we we were making plans how we we're going to do our year and this and that. And one of the things that we had planned, and unfortunately this thing came on us, was that we were going to be supporting not only Bellflower and, and, and Downey, but all the lodges in our district. We were going to be supportive uh, to go to the different uh, degrees, a sideliner, so the candidates will have a big audience because we all remember how special it was. We had big audiences. And uh, we talked to the other masters, and uh, to the best of my recollection, the only one that really were committed, it was uh, Dale and I. But even that did not happen, but here is happening. You know, out of a bad thing, we're assuming we have had the Grandmaster uh, John Trauner and other officers come and join us. Uh, I mean, this is something that would probably would have never happened in person, but, you know, so I do want to thank you for your presentation and, and please, uh, the rest of the worshipful masters and, and people from all the lodges who are uh, honoring with your attendance. If you have anything special, even if it's not so special, let us join you. You know, I know the St. Dimas, uh, they usually have their Zoom meeting on Thursdays by Solomon Staircase as well, and they are joining us. So that they're meeting this in our meeting, and we want to do the same. We want to come and join us. So just please invite us. And remember, you are invited next Thursday for the presentation of very worshipful uh, Jeff Roche. And thank you so very much. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.